Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Homi Karas, a senior fellow, Global Economy and Development Center for Sustainable Development with Brookings Institution, based in Washington, D.C., about his Brookings Policy Brief, a global sustainability program, Lessons from the Marshall Plan on Addressing climate change. So welcome to the interview. Thank you so much. Now, I did my degrees in history, so I, I, I find this very interesting. And you, so you're going to argue, you argue in your brief that the circumstances of today are similar to post-war Europe, 1947, 1948, and deserve a similar policy response for developing countries around uh, adapting to climate change and um, speeding up the energy transition. So let's start with the Marshall Plan. Uh, give us a, a bit of a, a background on what that was. Well, let me just take you uh, back a little bit to uh, 1946, 1947. Of course, uh, Europe is uh, struggling to uh, uh, recover from the uh, damage that was uh, created by the uh, uh, World War II. And what, was, what had happened was that there was a, uh, there was a quick rebound. Um, of course, that's to be uh, expected. But then the Europeans were finding it was very difficult to actually get their economies above, let's say, the pre-war levels, which for the sake of this uh, argument is uh, you know, 19, uh, 1938. And they were finding it difficult because they didn't have any dollars and they needed dollars to uh, trade. Their governments were uh, largely uh, completely uh, uh, exhausted in terms of their uh, finance. They'd run up huge debts at the uh, time of the uh, war, so they weren't able to uh, uh, put in place uh, new investments. And these economists were starting to uh, uh, starting to struggle, and people in Europe were feeling very pessimistic at the time. And so the sort of the analogy, and you know, one never really wants to uh, to take these analogies too far. The analogy to uh, today is that again, there is war. Many economies are stuck at levels below where they were before the pandemic and they're looking for something new. So what happened in Europe, what was new, is what's called the Marshall Plan. And it's uh, you know, a plan that is uh, uh, named after uh, the uh, US uh, Secretary of uh, State, uh, uh, George Marshall. And uh, he basically uh, gave a speech at Harvard in, June at a commencement speech in June of 1947. And he said, look, the US is going to do whatever it takes to the extent that is sensible for us to help Europe get back on its feet. 
And this then launched a series of discussions and negotiations about what that it would be. And in the end, it turned out to be a very substantial, large transfer of resources from America to Europe to help Europe get back on its feet. And that is what we now know as the Marshall Plan. It was a big investment program. Right, about $29 billion over four years, which back in the day, when a dollar was at all meant was meant uh, was worth something. Uh, it was a, so it was a lot of money at the time. And uh, the other thing that strikes me about this, uh, homie, and especially because uh, of you know Russia's in, invasion of uh, Ukraine, uh, there were obviously geopolitical implications uh, for the United States. I mean, it emerged from from World War II stronger than ever, clearly as the preeminent superpower at, at that time. And, and it was worried, if I rec- remember correctly, uh, about Europe slipping into the Soviet Union's sphere of influence. And it made perfect sense for the US to invest in a prosperous Europe because then it was a trading partner, it was markets. If uh, I got that correct? Absolutely. I mean, the way in which the plan was sold in uh, Washington was not that this is gonna help Europe, it was, we have to do something to stop the spread of communism in uh, Europe and the communists are uh, taking over. And uh, this was our effort to say, join us, the democracies, because we actually have a better offer and we can improve your lives more. And in many ways, you know, we're having this interview as the uh, G7 is uh, meeting in uh, Germany And uh, the G7 is just announcing a uh, new plan for uh, infrastructure to counteract the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So there are many of these kinds of uh, parallels uh, in the sense that there are geopolitical struggles and confrontations and competition today in the same way as there were geopolitical uh, struggles at the end of World War II. Right, and you make the point in your brief that the the Marshall Plan uh, launched a golden age of prosperity that probably lasted until at least 1970. Uh, and given where we're at, uh, on, we're on the verge of a global recession if we haven't tipped into one already, again, another parallel. Absolutely, I mean, I think that um you know, for people in my field, development economics, the Marshall Plan has always been held up as being the an example, one of the of one of the most successful uh, plans in development history, because it ended up helping not just Europe but also the United States, because Europe became such a large and important trading partner. And certainly for, uh, you know, all the way through from the end of World War II to the early 1970s, that model of prosperity based on trade, based on foreign investment, lasted really well. And today we need, again, a new model of economic growth in the world, which is a model based on uh, clean energy. The model we have, which is based on fossil fuels, isn't working any longer and is producing all kinds of crises that we see, 
and we've got to make this transition. Right, and of course, that has to, the 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 wealthier economies are well on their way to. Well, I guess we could argue about that, but I think it's fair to say that wealthier economies like Europe and the United States and in Canada and uh, and China are are making many of the investments they need in electric vehicles and batteries and expanding their clean energy, uh, the clean energy proportion of their portion of their electricity systems and so on and so forth. In developing countries, I've, in every uh, decarbonization pathway interview I've done, the developing countries are always thought that, you know, they'll, they'll take a lot, much longer, much longer to decarbonize and, and, and get and uh, develop those kinds of systems uh, that will be, you know, in the same way that the developed economies have. So here's my question then. The, the Chinese have the Belt and Road Initiative, and so they're busy investing in various economies to tie the, those countries into the Chinese economy's Chinese sphere of influence. Can we then see that there might be, you know, the G7 interested in doing the same thing for like Latin America or for, you know, other uh, in, in different parts of Asia? Uh, to counteract the, the Chinese, and therefore it makes a lot of sense to, to push the decarbonization, the clean energy agenda, because it has geopolitical implications as well. Sure, and the G7 is trying to do that, and uh, you know, has uh, come up with a uh, plan on a new infrastructure uh, facility. The problem is that as yet, they haven't put any serious money behind it, and infrastructure is expensive. So it's great to have a plan and say, we're going to support you to have the highest standards of uh, you know, new green infrastructure. But if you don't put any money behind it, the, the other plan, the Chinese plan, starts to look that much more attractive because the Chinese come in and say, look, we're not just going to give you the money. We're going to give you the money. We're going to give you the workforce. And by the way, we actually know how to build infrastructure because we've just done it all through China. You want to take a look, come and see. So they have, you know, demonstrations of the capabilities of some of their firms. And in all truthfulness, the Chinese today have some of the most competitive construction companies in the world because they've had so much experience. Now you talk up in your brief about having a plan uh, for the developing countries, uh, let's call it similar to the Marshall Plan. Can you describe it, please? I think ultimately uh, it comes down to uh, money. The developing countries, uh, by and large, know what it is they uh, would like to spend money on. Uh, they just don't have access to uh, finance at the same kind of rates as is available in advanced economies. So in the United States, in Europe, uh, governments are still able to uh, borrow at extremely low interest rates, notwithstanding the recent increases by the uh, Fed and in the euro area, et cetera. But these are small and in, in historical perspective, we're still talking about close to zero real rates of interest on government borrowing and debt. Developing countries, by and large, are facing interest rates of 8, 9, 10%. So there's a huge wedge when they can get access to money. 
at those kinds of rates, it no longer makes sense to do many of the upfront investments that a green transition would imply. So the big element of the plan is how do we get capital to be reallocated to developing countries at the kinds of rates that are uh, available in advanced economies? And the answer to that is we use the multilateral development banks that was set up after World War II to channel money to Europe. Again, same issue. Europe faced high interest rates, big dollar shortages. We set up mechanisms for transferring dollars to them. We have to use those same mechanisms to transfer far more uh, resources to developing countries for these kinds of investments. I was just reading a Twitter thread this morning uh, from an economist who was talking about this very issue. And one of the points that he made uh, is, well, several. Uh, one is, this is going to take a lot of money. And I think your estimate was $1.3 trillion a year. And secondly, there's a lot of capital that has been sitting on the sidelines or has been underutilized or could be available that hasn't been made available for a variety of reasons. And it, it, my takeaway from that uh, conversation was that if, if governments can come to the table, the G7, for instance, and if they can uh, uh, augment whatever capital they allocate with private capital, that would seem to be the best, uh, I mean, the only feasible way of achieving the kind of sustainable development that you're talking about. I think that's exactly right. So uh, at the... Uh... Glasgow uh, conference on uh, climate change, uh, what's called COP26, uh, there's something called the uh, uh, Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS. These people have $130 trillion of assets. And they basically said, if you present us with good projects, which are suitably de-risked, we will deploy a chunk of this money to help make these investments happen. And that shows you that we do have, there is money at the scale that we're talking about, but it needs to be essentially uh, deployed into specific projects. And all of the discussions now are about how do we de-risk those projects? How do we make them happen? How do we make sure that, you know, infrastructure projects are very complicated. How do we make sure that they are technically uh, done in a, uh, in a sensible fashion. Now, you put forward a four-point plan, if I understand this correctly. Uh, so a strong political commitment to the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris agendas, uh, a credible technical plan, uh, and then that will then free up finance to flow effectively into the various investments that are required. And then of course, institutions are required. And in the developing world, they, institutions aren't always in place or they're weaker than they, they need to be. Uh, a lot of this sounds like the kind of problems in, in uh, international aid and international development we've had for decades. I think it is. I think the difference is that uh, now there's real urgency to delivering. So when we dealt with international aid, basically we were saying, 
you do certain things, you'll improve. But if you don't do those things, you won't get the benefits, the world won't come to an end. When we're dealing with climate change, if we don't make these investments and make these investments in these places, the world won't come to an end, but it's going to be a very different world from the world we're living in today. And I think that's the big difference between climate change and development. Development was what I would call a something that would be nice to have. We'd all be better off in the world if it uh, happened. Climate change is something that I believe we must have that if we don't get many more countries on board with this agenda, all of us are going to uh, face a very, very different uh, uh, world, with, um, uh, which is quite unpredictable. I mean, if uh, we could just say, okay, fine, it's going to be a few degrees uh, warmer, and that's the end of it. The problem is, we don't know what will happen. And uh, the only thing that science seems to be telling us is that whatever it is, isn't going to be pretty. So, uh, Romy, do, do you think that that the political conditions are right uh, for the uh, developed countries to move forward with the plan that you've laid out in your policy brief? I think that uh, right now, um, countries are still very focused on short-term fires. We have a war in Ukraine. We have food price spikes. We have energy price spikes. We're just coming off uh, COVID. Uh, so the attention of policymakers is diverted to what I would call the immediate. And of course, one has to take care of the immediate, but one can't lose sight of the long-term sustained transformations that need to be done. And you said that, well, there's a lot going on in advanced economies and uh, you know electric vehicles and batteries and such like. Sorry, there isn't. There's some going on. It is nowhere close to happening on the scale and speed that is needed. And the big problem remains in advanced economies. They have furthest to go because they continue to be the largest emitters in the world on a per capita basis. Developing countries have a longer transition path because they're starting from such a low base. But it's in the advanced economies of the world, and in particular in North America, in the United States and Canada, where the per capita emissions are way, way above anywhere else. And, you know, to bring that down to zero is, is a tremendously, uh, you know, complex uh, task. So that, that is really where we are, uh, you know, where we are today. So I think the political conditions are starting to align. But the, the real urgency and recognition and commitment to go down this path and stay on this path over the decade or two decades for the transformation to be completed is still a big challenge. 
One of the ideas that caught my attention in your, your brief is that we need to change the narrative. And here at Energy Media for a number of years, we've been, we've been writing and interviewing about energy narratives, climate narratives, how they need to change, why they're not changing, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the impact, the effect of the, the incumbent actors on impeding changes to narrative. Uh, so I, that, that I would be very interested in that. Uh, I think we all have a pretty good idea of what the existing narrative is. Uh, what narrative do we need? So I think the existing narrative is, look, we have a growth path, but it's producing these um, nasty uh, externalities, economists call them spillovers, which are called climate change. And if we spend a little bit more money in dealing with that, then everything's going to be fine. That isn't the right narrative. The right narrative is we today have an opportunity to enter a world of very, very cheap power, electric power far cheaper than anything we've ever seen before. That world offers a tremendous array of opportunities, growth opportunities. That's the world that we have to get to, and we should get there fast. And this notion that we're not trying to avoid some costs of climate change, what we're really trying to do is take advantage of the opportunities that science has given us to really use these new technologies for growth and prosperity. That's what we have to seize with both hands. And that's the real opportunity that is, uh, that's in front of us. Uh, and that's very exciting. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Professor uh, Anton uh, Werner uh, Antweiler, sorry, uh, economist at the University of British Columbia, and we were talking about uh, Schumpeter's uh, uh, waves of innovation. And so his argument is that we are now entering the sixth wave of innovation, sometimes called the fourth industrial order uh, or industrial revolution, revolution. and and the, we're, we're already seeing in the 2020s this tremendous disruption in a wide range of, of industries, including uh, the power sector, including the transportation sector, and we'll soon see them in things like industry and buildings. Uh, and so that seems that the, the, the conditions that are required to do the kind of rapid switch that you're talking about seems to be falling in place. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it, uh, if, if that if perception of things is accurate, then essentially uh, everybody's racing to uh, find their place to be competitive in this new restructured economy based on, on uh, low cost, uh, clean electricity and, and low carbon fuels like hydrogen and, and others. And it seems like if there's ever going to be an opportunity to, to implement your plan and, and to achieve the goals that are required, a period of disruption is the time to change the narrative and move things forward. But is that a fair observation? I think that's exactly uh, right. And uh, the only thing I would um, 
you know, add is that in, in many cases, when there are these kinds of uh, disruptions, we rely on, you know, individual actors to do a number of things. And then if you will, the, the best idea emerges as being the uh, solution. Here, when we're talking about these kinds of very big transitions, we need governments to play a guiding role. So, you know, the simplest example is that if uh, everybody comes out with an electric vehicle, but everybody needs a different plug for uh, to uh, charge it, then uh, their particular car, that's going to be very expensive. But if the government comes up with a standard, then it the whole process moves much more smoothly and the government may need to put in place an infrastructure of charging stations and pass new regulations to uh, for uh, various kinds of things. So there's a certain degree of coordination that's required. But then what we really need is the, you know, energy and innovativeness that comes from uh, private business. And uh, that's, that's one reason why we've got a chance at any of this. It's because private businesses is, see, is seeing these opportunities. They're not shying away from it. And they are putting huge amounts of money towards being the first one. I mean, if, if you solve the battery problem today, you're going to be a very, very rich entrepreneur. Well, me, this has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, I'm not sure if I come away from it more or less optimistic. Uh, but I think that you, the ideas that you've uh, laid out in your policy brief for a plan for the developing countries. We'll be watching to see what the G7 uh, uh, does in the next little while and whether or not we see them moving in this direction. So thank you very much for this. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>